um, well, I am not the moderator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm Nicholas Kristoff from the New York Times, and I just got corralled by these really tough people around us because we don't seem to have a moderator at the moment. Um, and uh, so I'm going to start off, and if a moderator joins us, then uh, I will gladly turn over this incredibly powerful mic. <laughs> so what I'm going to do, first of all, is ask each... We have a, a great uh, panel. I'm going to ask... Uh, we have a moderator. <laughs> I'm saved. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, I was eating dinner, and I didn't realize that it was starting. Um, in my defense, I last had a chicken sandwich at around 10 o'clock this morning. Um, I'm, I'm going to start off by uh, just actually asking the columnists to, to uh, the columnists, <laughs> the one columnist, um, the, the, the panelists to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about um, their experience with this incredibly important um, and frightening topic. So um, if you could start. Great. Um, I'm Kavita Ramdas, and I'm president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women. Um, the issue of trafficking in general and the issue of sex trafficking in particular is of particular concern to me, both personally and professionally. Um, in my work as a, an activist on behalf of women's human rights, um, it is, as both Cheryl and um, Nick have mentioned in their book, Half the Sky, one of the most pressing modern problems of our times with regard to um, modern-day slavery that we, are, that we face, um, and women and girls are disproportionately affected by it. So as someone who cares about women's rights, it's a reason that I'm involved um, very deeply. Personally, I'm the mother of a 16-year-old and um, grew up as the eldest of three daughters in India. India is one of the countries that is a recipient country uh, for um, women who are trafficked primarily from Bangladesh and Nepal, and I grew up in Bombay, um, very familiar with the red light district and young girls who, um, often as young as um, 12 or 13, who had been trafficked from either Nepal or Bangladesh into India. And so um, have a very personal sense of um, concern and outrage about what I see as truly a, a one of the most outrageous forms of modern day slavery. I'm really glad to be here with my colleagues. Um, so uh, I'm Nicholas Kristoff. Um, I became interested in this issue when my wife Cheryl and I were based in Tokyo as correspondents for the New York Times, and I began writing about the issue and in particular made a trip to the Philippines and Cambodia uh, reporting on this, and it just blew me away what I found. In Cambodia, there was a village of girls who'd been kidnapped and sold there, a village called Svaipak, and I met girls there who were locked up, a 13-year-old girl who was, uh, essentially her, her, her virginity was being auctioned off. And uh, at that point, uh, a girl within six months of entering the sex trade in Cambodia um, had a two-thirds chance of, of contracting HIV. It was really a death sentence. Um, and the business model, in many cases, involved kidnapping these rural girls and then locking them up in the brothels. If they ran away, then the police would grab them and return them right back to the brothel owner. Um, the, um, the stories just grabbed me and wouldn't let me go. I, they were, I, I came across uh, two girls who'd been walking to school one day. Uh, they were in their early teens. They were walking to school one day, 
And they came across an older woman who was sick by the side of the road. And so they helped her. They led her to a tree so she could rest under the shade. Um, they offered to get her some water. And she began feeling better under the shade. She, that she was very, very grateful to them. Um, she uh, offered them a drink as, as thanks. Next thing they knew, they were, well, they didn't know, they were, but they, the drink knocked them unconscious. The woman called over a rickshaw, put him in the back of the rickshaw, and drove to uh, Tulkork, the red light district in Phnom Penh, to sell them to a brothel. And what happened was that the rickshaw driver saw what was going on and saw these negotiations. And when the, uh, this trafficker went inside to get paid, with these two girls still unconscious in the back, the rickshaw driver uh, just drove off with the two girls there and and they eventually came back, and otherwise they would have ended up dying of AIDS in the brothel. And um, so that was my first exposure to this, and then that led me to uh, go back and report in a number of countries uh, about it. Um, and I think one of the things that, one of the reasons why I think it does rise to be so important is the uh, scale of it, that the peak of the transatlantic slave trade was in the 1780s. And in that period, um, about just under 80,000 slaves a year were transported from Africa to the New World, just under 80,000. These days, figures are all over the map, and there are some definitional issues, but the State Department estimate is just under 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders. And that does not include those like those girls in Cambodia who were trafficked within a country. So when you put together the brutality fact that so many end up dying of AIDS and the lethality of it and, and just the scale of it, I think this truly is one of the issues that has to be very high on our agenda. Thank you, Nick. Um, my name is Randy Newcomb. I'm the president of a private family foundation called Humanity United. We got involved in this about eight years ago when uh, we began to confront this issue of human trafficking and modern-day slavery and begin to wonder how a philanthropist could really make an impact globally. And how could we use the resources that we have been blessed with to be able to fund these many organizations that were work, working to do this work literally around the world? One of the interesting facts that came out of our early work in 2004 was just in, just in our small foundation, the amount of money that we brought into the field doubled what the U.S. was providing in 2004. And so it, it shows you, you know, the lack of resources that have existed in this space. And so we really come to it as a philanthropist, really looking for opportunities, looking for ways in which we can provide the resources, the social capital, and the, and the, uh, the inspiration for organizations to address uh, modern-day slavery. I'm Sandra O'Connor, retired and out of work. I'm an out-of-work cowgirl. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a subject about which I am well-informed. <clears throat> But it's one that I think everyone should be concerned about because just reading a little bit about it is a terrifying thing. It's hard to think that in this day and age we have so many youngsters in slavery, in effect, in bondage. It isn't just confined to young women. There are boys, little boys, who are spirited away in the same fashion and abused and used. 
And it's just hard to believe that it exists today. And I think my motivation for having an interest in it is with the hope that somehow governments, at least of nations with whom we enjoy good relations, would be willing to work with us as a nation to reduce it. Now, I spend part of my time in my home state of Arizona. And I pick up the Arizona newspaper every day when I'm there. And not infrequently, there are articles about some house that the police have raided because they think there are illegal aliens being held there. Have you ever heard of Jer Sheriff Joe Arpaio? In okay, another raid by Joe. But occasionally he uncovers something we all need to know about. And in the cases where he uncovers a house full of uh, girls or young men who are being used for sex trade purposes, it's just appalling to me that they could have been brought across the border from Mexico into Arizona and held in a house until they can be sold or disposed of in some fashion. This shouldn't be happening. And I don't know what we can do, but surely we can do something. I'm Ann Veneman. I um, just recently completed a five-year term as Executive Director of the United Nations Children's Fund, or UNICEF. Um, and the primary areas of focus for UNICEF are health, education, and protection of children. And of course, this trafficking, human trafficking issue is um, so directly related uh, to children because so many of the of the people who are trafficked are children. I mean, like Nick, I think one of the most difficult things that I did when I traveled all over the world, um, really looking at the work of UNICEF, advocating for the issues that UNICEF works on, is meeting particularly some of these young women who had experienced trafficking earlier in their lives. I met a young, 12, a young woman who, at the age of 12, um, she was taken by a woman who she had been entrusted by the, her mother into her care because the mother happened to be in jail for shoplifting. So as a 12-year-old, she was taken to Dubai where uh, basically her virginity, like Nick says, was auctioned off. She said they took her out, bought her a nice white dress, and she was basically put into sexual slavery. She could not leave. She could not move out of this place. And she told me that finally she was so desperate that she jumped out of the second floor apartment window, ended up in the hospital, and that's when the authorities figured out that she'd been trafficked and returned her. But her life will never be the same. Um, and these stories go on and on. And it's not just trafficking for sexual yeah. trade yeah. purposes. There are so many children who are trafficked into child labor who are, and many of them are trafficked and even willingly given by the parents thinking that the child is going to go live with the family and get an education, get a better life and they're basically put into bondage, um, either as workers or as sexual slaves or as a multiple number of these things. And so 
uh, this issue of, of trafficking of children is, I think, one that, that stays hidden from public view, both in the U.S. and around the world. And it's one that we all need to pay attention to. I, I would say that I think that the international travel issue, the industry has tried to pay attention to this issue to address the demand for particularly child um, sexual um, prostitutes and so forth. And I, I really think that, that there has to be responsibility taken on the part of industries that can impact the demand for these children in particular? Um, well, I'm going to uh, move on to solutions in a little while, but I'd actually um, first just like to talk about the mechanics of how this works. And Mr. Kristoff, you have actually um, famously um, gone through a human trafficking transaction. So can you talk about how, how does it start? How do you find people to buy? And how, do, how does it work at that level, you know, up through the... the Ownership. Um, it uh, well, I mean, the trafficking model uh, varies country by country, but there are actually remarkable commonalities. And one of them is it always strikes me that pimping in the U.S. in some ways is remarkably similar to pimping in in Bombay or in uh, Phnom Penh, and that the essence of it is um, what you need to do is you need to crush this girl's will. Um, you need to uh, terrify her. You need to destroy her sense of um, self-worth um, and uh, kind of turn her into an automaton. And um, so, and there, you know, there, there, there are some differences uh, by country because in the U.S. a girl needs to be able to leave the brothel to go to a hotel room and then you need to make sure she comes back while in a lot of foreign brothels, you just lock her up there. Um, uh, the incident that you're referring to was somewhat famously in 2004. I ended up um, buying uh, two girls from Cambodian brothels, uh, one for $150, one for just over $200. Uh, I got receipts. When you get a receipt for buying a human being uh, in the 21st century, that really should be a shame on us all. Um, I came to know that brothel in particular, the, the, the one that, the brothel from which I bought one of those uh, girls quite well, and over the years I returned to many times, I got to know the brothel owner quite well, um, sort of, I really wanted to understand her business model and how, um, and how it worked. And what fascinated me was that she was just a profit-maximizing businesswoman, and she found that she could make a little bit more money kidnapping girls in rural areas and selling them. Um, one of the ways she made the most money was selling virginity. And then after that, renting them out was kind of gravy on top. But the real way you make money is you kidnap a girl, your costs are next to nothing, you can sell her for maybe $500 um, uh, to a, some businessman thereafter. And if you can erode that, which goes a little bit to the solution, if you can um, go after the, the, that sale, sale of the virginity, then you really undermine their business model. Um, and I think that there's also, you know, a sense that prostitution is the world's oldest profession. There's not much we can do about it. It's tragic, but that's life. And what struck me about this uh, brothel owner in particular is um, that uh, she 
you know, she was there because she could make a little bit more money doing other things, but she also had reservations. She always complained that with a brothel, you can't leave, you can't go on vacation, you know, basically because you got to imprison all your girls. Um, but she was always griping about that. She had a daughter, and frankly, she worried a little bit about whether, you know, this stream of drunken men coming in, because their brothel was also her home, whether that would have a bad effect on her daughter. Um, she, um, she didn't really worry about uh, police actions initially, but later over time, partly because of the work of NGOs, partly because of the work of journalists, there began to be more of a spotlight on trafficking in this town of Poipet in Cambodia. And so as a result, the police didn't actually close down any of these brothels, but on rare occasions, they would actually, you know, if, if they just absolutely stumbled upon it and there was no way to avoid it, they would actually arrest a trafficker. And if that person didn't have enough money to pay a big bribe, then there was some slight risk that a trafficker might go to jail. And so for the first time, she began to think, you know, it's very unlikely, but maybe she would actually get in trouble with the law. In addition, uh, the police, while they weren't closing down the brothels, they were demanding more and more in bribes each day. And that eroded the profitability, that eroded her business model. And so finally she ended up closing the brothel, turning the girls out, and turning her brothel into a grocery store. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think prostitution may be around a thousand years from now. But I don't think we necessarily need to accept that a corollary of that is that 13-year-old girls have to be kidnapped uh, and locked up in cages. That part of it, we may not be able to eliminate, but we certainly can make headway on. Well, and I think it's important in terms of logistics. Nick prefaced his comments by saying that it, it can be extremely different in different parts of the world and mentioned the fact that actually the majority of human trafficking in the world is not into the sex trade, but into many other forms of forced labor. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand as well, that essentially we're living in a world where we consider the other whether it's a child from a rural area or whether it's a child from a different country or whether it's a runaway child in the United States, the vast majority of young victims of trafficking are actually victims of domestic abuse in their families. They are either running away from rape or incest or violence in their homes and are then very vulnerable to people who offer them you know, the, both the love, and I think this is an important aspect of this when you think about what are the logistics um, children who have been denied a sense of their own self-worth in their own homes often believe that a pimp or somebody else offering them a better world can actually give them love and respect. And I think that is an important thing to understand around the psychology of trafficking. Similarly, the gross inequalities that we have in our world, both within countries and across countries, uh, so although India may not seem to any of you like a very prosperous country, to someone who's grown up in a village in Nepal, India seems like an incredibly rich and thriving economy. And for many parents, again, as Anne said, it's not always that children are coerced in the literal sense of kidnapping. Yes, there are the instances that Nick described of, you know, being drugged and literally physically picked up and kidnapped, but far too often it's actually much more 
the banality of evil, as Anna Harant said. You know, it's, it is much more the next-door neighbor who says, oh, you know, I can get your daughter a good job in a good household in India. Uh, she can clean the floors, and that family will take care of her, and then she can look after, you know, she can get an education. The, the economics of the inequalities, the fact that for a Nepali family, they're often making an equation. If that girl goes away, one less mouth for us to feed, and five mouths that we can actually feed because the person who's going to take her away from the village will often offer the parents 300, 400, 500 rupees, which is nothing. It's a pittance. But for that family, it's a way to get through the next, you know, the next month, the next uh, quarter. Um, so I think there's something around this that we also have to understand. There is an economic logic also that feeds into this. And, and then going back to sort of, uh, therefore, the argument about women's education and economic opportunity that Nick and Cheryl have articulated so well in their book, becomes another piece around how can you do something about it. If women, including the brothel owner, had a real opportunity to make equivalent money in, an, in, a, in either a business or in a profession, where because she had an education, far too often the women who are involved in prostitution um, or in trafficking um, are themselves um, women who haven't been educated, who don't have an opportunity to have the you know, to, to be involved in the formal labor force. So I would just add those perspectives, and I think many of the women's groups that we support worldwide are trying to work on those aspects of the logistics, if you will. Um, I'd like to talk about that a little bit and ask something a little bit provocative, maybe, which is when you listen to these stories, they're horrifying, but they're also very reminiscent, at least for a recovering English major. I mean, a lot of them are Dickens. Yes, they're, they're you Dickens, know, these stories absolutely. of girls' virginities being auctioned off could be pulled out of yeah. any of dozens of Victorian account, you know, hi histories. And you know, one one way to look at that is that as societies get richer, this stuff happens less because parents, for example, don't need to get rid of an extra mouth that they can no longer afford to feed. They're less anxious about their children's future. There's more resources to spread around. And so, and, and the police have less other kinds of crime to enforce, and so they can crack down more on this. We care more. As, as we get wealthier, we can care more about things on the fringes. And you can actually have a childhood, which was something that only happened right. after Victorian. <laughs> Basically. I mean, it's a very recent notion, the notion of having a childhood. And, and Dickens himself was, was sent into a factory at the age of, I think, eight, which is you know, where he got May a lot I of what he wrote about. May I ask you what nations in the world are regarded as the worst offenders these days in terms of uh, allowing trafficking in these children? Well, Anne probably has a, I, I would say Anne is probably a better person to speak to that in terms of overall trafficking. I, I think, um, you know, there's, there's two issues, uh, Justice O'Connor. One of them is being a receiving nation, which right. countries like India and the United States and others are, um, yeah. which is relative development. So you can be a recipient of people. Israel is a country, actually, that receives a number of trafficked um, women, mainly from the former Soviet Union. I don't know what the numbers are in terms of um, domestic labor trafficking. Randy and Anne might have a, have a better sense of that in terms well, of other look, kinds of forced actually, labor. when you look at these numbers, it's, it's um, you know, one, one out of 24 slaves globally are considered to be generally trafficked for sexual exploitation. But the interesting thing on the, on the economics of it 
is that you know Nick Nick recognizes that these numbers are all over the place, but mm -hmm. but generally when you look at the trade as as a practice, it's it's somewhere in the forty to fifty billion dollar uh, range mm -hmm. globally. So that's the that's it's the, considered to be the third largest after correct, yeah. uh, um, arms and drugs. Drugs, right? And people are the third largest. Yeah. And so when you look at those economics, though, the the the, the trafficking of, of individuals, oftentimes children and women. Uh, for sex, sexual exploitation represents 40% of, um, of that valuation. So it's, it's the predominance of the economic activity that takes place. My own experience from reading news accounts would relate to what we're getting in the U.S. from Mexico and other Latin American countries. I don't know what Asian nations would be particularly involved. Would it be? Uh, countries that are very poor in Asia, um, Cambodia, Cambodia, as, as um, Nick pointed Thailand. out, Laos, Thailand. Thailand, Thailand has always been a big one for Nepal. sexual tourism. <laughs> yes. But I, I mean, I would push back a little bit at the notion that it's essentially about poverty. And if you look at um, the poorest countries in the world, you know, Burundi, Burkina Faso, Niger, Sierra Leone, Guinea, you don't actually see nearly as much uh, uh, trafficking. You see, certainly see some prostitution in these places, but it's much more likely um, transactional sex you see labor trafficking. You see, you see some labor trafficking, but you don't see as much as in other countries where I think the fundamental problem is devaluation of girls. And... It seems to me that one of the best ways of, you know, of, of indeed predicting where you get um, girls locked up in brothels in particular is indeed places where girls are Culturally just not, done. yeah, I mean, just are not accepted as, mm -hmm. um, not given equal status and not protected by police and, and this kind of thing. So I... Um, I think poverty can be the excuse used to further, um, but but I certainly think it plays into into child trafficking. That's not necessarily sexual. Yeah, I, and I think, um, I mean, I think there's a number of things that are happening now that are promising. There are countries now that are actually working together, based on studies that have really looked at where are the patterns of sex trafficking. You know, there's the former Soviet Union going into the Middle East. There are the Asian countries. There's the, the, the whole pattern around Asia, China, Thailand, Cambodia. But we, there, there is more and more knowledge about the roots of, of the roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, of, uh, of where these, these people are trafficked. And so you can begin to then address it. One of the success stories, interestingly, um, of trafficked children that UNICEF worked on for a number of years is the issue of camel jockeys that were being, yeah. children who were being exported from Pakistan into the Middle East to be camel jockeys. And through working with the countries involved, um, pretty much this practice has stopped and the, uh, the camel owners now, the racers, now put, use mechanical camel jockeys instead of children. And that's as the, the result of a lot of work of the UN. That's just one little example. I, I think there, the kind of thing that's going on in Africa, and a lot of what goes on in West Africa yeah. is similar to the rest of in Haiti, where people exactly. actually put exactly. the children 
into homes somewhere else. <coughs> Nick writes, Nick and Cheryl write about Tostan in their book, and primarily their, the results they got on female genital cutting, but they've also gotten another very important result in that these families in these communities that have been Tostan communities, which you can read about if you buy their book. I'm their, <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm one of their new agents now. Um, but the, one of the results has been that they have also taught these families not to send their girls away to the bigger communities and basically put them in these homes where they get abused. That's been part of the outcome. And so I think... Um, and that pressure is related to poverty. I mean, this whole notion of sending children away to, quote-unquote, get a better chance in someone else's home. This is very common. This is what we see in it's Mali, in Senegal, yeah. Burkina, right. all of these It's very places. common in West Africa. It's yeah. very common in Haiti. And the result is a lot of abused girls yeah. and a lot of unwanted children because yes. many of these yes. young mm -hmm. girls get abused in these households where they're put, their families think they're getting an education and a better opportunity, and, in fact, they're getting much less. And, and I, I guess that's an important thing to share with the audience as well, is I think we sometimes kid ourselves, perhaps, that being trafficked into a brothel is the only way that you're sexually abused. And yet, Randy knows, you know, that when you're a slave, you're a slave, period. That means your slave owner can sleep with you, can beat you, can molest you, can request sexual favors of you, whether or not you're being paid for it as you are in prostitution. So I think that's an important clarifying uh, understanding for all of us to have, which is a lot of children in these situations and adults who are in these situations. Uh, women who are trafficked into sweatshops are often abused sexually as well. So it, it's not just, you're not just sexually abused if you're into a, into a well, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about this and, and talk about what, what are sort of the border cases of trafficking. Because obviously in a world where you have gigantic economic inequalities, um, you have things that don't quite look like trafficking but still look very exploitive. Because, I mean, you, you the maids who go into all over the, the Arab Emirates and so forth who aren't slaves in the sense that they could leave. But if they go, they don't, you know, their employer has their passport and they don't really have, they're not locked up, but there are more subtly coercive yeah. relationships. Yeah. I mean, does that count? I, I'd, I'd actually like to hear everyone sort of offering, what, how, what do we call that? Um, That's a really good question. I mean, in our experience at the Global Fund for Women, we've supported women's groups um, that are support groups, essentially, support groups for Filipino nannies in um, Jordan, for example, where you know the presence of uh, foreign workers. The New York Times just did an excellent piece on um, Israel's foreign workers um, and how much abuse can happen if you're not protected under the law. So I think, I think you're right. The inequalities create other circumstances. I do think, though, when we use the word human slavery and trafficking, part of the reason we need to be careful about it and part of the reason whether or not we agree on how to address the question of prostitution, I think all of us are in alignment around the question of abolishing the practice of modern-day slavery. But there are many fine lines, and, and I think we need to be careful to understand, um, and, I, and I guess that's where you know, Nick's distinction about economic coercion versus physical coercion is an important distinction, because you can feel economically coerced and take a job that is 
less than safe. But is that the same thing as being physically picked up as a 12-year-old and being, you know, thrown in the back of a rickshaw and taken to a brothel? No, I would say not. Um, you know, I think it leaves us with a profound area that is grey, that we, we need to support local organizations to be able to sort of shine a spotlight on. I'm curious if any, if, if the United Nations, if any agency is taking specific action, I'm wondering if the United Nations, through any of its offices, has taken positions on trying to stop any of it. Oh, oh uh, the United Nations has been very active. I, I mean, UNICEF has done a lot of work on the, the issues of children and protection of children at all levels. Um, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime has been involved, uh, UNDP to some extent. Um, but, you know, there's a broad range of uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, of course. I'm sure there's many other agencies, but th that that there is a coordinated effort working in this area. I also think, you know, when you're asking the question about where is the line, I think it's, it's not really well defined, but I think, you know, why else are children abducted or put into modern day slavery? I mean, there is, there is really not much difference from a child being abducted and put into sexual slavery or a child being abducted in northern Uganda and made into a child soldier. Soldier, exactly. And, you know, we often don't put these issues together, but in fact, you're stealing a child and you're putting them, you're stealing their childhood and you're putting them to work in one way or another. And I think, you know, so we never talk about child soldiers and, and trafficking, but in fact, these children who are abducted, are trafficked, yeah. it's very... Yeah. It's not much yeah. different. No, absolutely. An answer, uh, I mean, to your question about, you know, is when people leave a country for out of economic desperation, I, I think it's a real mistake to think of that as anything like slavery. And indeed, I think one of the problems in the humanitarian community is that it tends to overreach sometimes, uh, and that that has probably been true in the issue of trafficking, and that there is a tendency by advocates for any cause to um, sometimes exaggerate and, um, you know, there um, certainly there's an awful lot of prostitution that isn't remotely um, sexual slavery. China probably has far more prostitutes than any country in the world. There isn't a lot of forced prostitution there. You don't have a lot of pimps. You, um, you don't have girls locked up in brothels there. Uh, Brazil has a lot of prostitution. Uh, South Africa does, it, it's, but it's also it's not so much this coercive uh, model. And um, you know, like, there's an awful lot of economic desperation that leads people to do things that they would not choose, that they do not like to do. But I really think that there is a huge difference between that and the kind of physical coercion, yeah. where yeah. Uh, whether it's a laborer who's locked up in a brick kiln yeah. uh, or whether it's a girl locked up in a brothel. I think that, you know, when we think about slavery, that's a pretty high bar to meet, and I think that's what that bar should be. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate your saying that, Nick. I, I, my frustration oftentimes about these conversations is that they get really academic very quickly. Yeah. And we want to understand where are the borders of this and, you know, what is the range and, uh, you know, is it 12 million people or is it 27 million people? And I want to ask you, is it okay in our world today for there to be, okay, let's say it's only 12 million people globally to be slaves. Is that okay? No. No. Of course not. And so 
I don't know what it benefits us to say, okay, there is a sort of a border here where you're right, you know, you're absolutely right, it's, it's, it's needs of uh, economics. But, but we live in a world where slavery exists. And too often, this, these debates range between sort of public awareness campaigns and posters in the airport, and, and then it goes all the way to the broader sort of global poverty questions. And nobody's willing to stay right in the middle and say, okay, what about the 12 million? What are the solutions for the 12 million? And that's the kind of conversation. I don't want to be one of those activists, you know, that, that projects it too much. But I also want to be one of those individuals that says, I don't want to live in a world where it's okay, where at a minimum 12 million people are enslaved, and where we think in 1861 the Emancipation Proclamation freed everybody from around the world. It didn't happen. And so we should be committed to making sure it doesn't continue. Well, I think it's useful to define the scope of what it is if only to start defining solutions. So it's probably yeah. a, a good time to move on to talking about how do you, I mean, how do you go in and, and everyone here is in some sense going in as an outsider. You're going in as an NGO that's, come, that's not living locally where it's happening. Um, how, do you, how do you go into a country with institutions and economic problems and so forth and fix this? Um, and, and the UN is probably the best place to start with that question. Well, and I, I've tried to address some of that already in, in talking about some of the kinds of things that are being done to, to look at patterns of trafficking, to help you know, countries address it within their own legal structures. Um, a lot of countries don't have the right kinds of legal structures um, to address these kinds of things, and, and that's where the, the UN, I think, has done a fair amount of very good work. Um, but I also think there is as I was talking about before with this, this organization called TOSTEN and the model of actually changing cultures yeah, about how you value your yeah. children is yeah. very important work. And it is done on the ground. It's yes. not coming in from the outside. These are actually the people themselves changing their own practices and what they've thought was okay. And I would argue that happened in the West as well. Yes. Um, it's not like the West woke up one morning and was like, oh, slavery, we should get rid of it. You know, it was because slaves rebelled, because women asked and demanded that they be treated differently, that you had emancipation of women. And the same thing is true in the developing world. It isn't, I mean, I remember going to marches with my mother as a, in 1983 as a teenager um, in India to demand changes in the laws around rape. Because essentially, until 1983 in India, a woman had to prove that she had been raped and she needed to have all kinds of witnesses who were supposed to have seen the rape to be able to prove this. So I do think that in what we call the developing world, but in many parts of the world, there are indigenous, outraged parents, mothers, sisters, fathers, people who simply cannot accept that this form of buying and selling in human beings is happening. And they are mobilizing and they are organizing and they are not outsiders. And, and Nick and Cheryl have talked about this in their book as well. I mean, I, so that gives me a great deal of hope, I guess I would say. Well, I'm, I'm not trying to imply that like, people in developing countries don't love their children and just are totally fine with sexual slavery. What I'm saying is that everyone here, right, the people in this audience are not going to go and be part of an indigenous movement to crack down on right. Cambodian. So how do you help? How do you go and, and help make that transition? How do you well, effectively you go in and support? Like, 
you know, concrete, what are concrete things I mean, I think you support organizations here in the United States that are supporting groups on the ground. I think that's profoundly important. Nick and uh, Cheryl have talked about the importance of philanthropy in this regard. People often say, you know, well, what can my $10 do? Well, your $10 makes a huge difference in being able to actually support organizations on the ground in countries where very few of them have the resources that they need to do this work on a daily basis, supporting organizations like the UN, just educating yourself about... I'm stunned at how many people I've talked to, even at this Aspen gathering, who didn't know. I mean, at our table uh, yesterday, um, or today at lunch, I think, Randy, we, were, we, we talked to people who didn't know about the issue of trafficking. And so I think raising awareness is something else we can do. Um, and that's one of the reasons that books like Half the Sky have been so profoundly important. I'll divide royalties up. <laughs> yes, um, uh, I will open it up to, to Q&A after a last, a last question, which is like, is it getting better? Um, are, you know, how much improvement are we actually making against the tide? I mean, you know, in some way, right, we're working against an international a globalization that makes it easier to traffic mm -hmm. and makes it more profitable in a lot of ways. So are, are we going forward or backwards at this point? Um, well, is there any evidence of improvement? I haven't seen it. Have you? Let me ask you. Um, well, I, I, I'm the moderator, so I'm not supposed to know anything. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, my impression is that on the one hand, you have um, you have material improvement in places that are getting yes. wealthier, that are getting uh, better legal systems, where the conflict is dying down, where all of the things that feed trafficking are improving, that it does get better. But at the same time, you have conflict appearing in other places. Yeah. You have farther places. You have, you know, with better transportation, it's easier to take people farther, people going to Thailand to indulge their desire for six-year-old children, yeah. and people taking kids here or adults here um, in order to, to, you know, run them through strip clubs or whatever it is that I, I don't know what, what the answer is, whether it's – so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to hear from somebody. Can come in on that the, solutions uh, yes. one? Because I don't want to – I don't want to leave it – I don't want to leave a saying just sort of wringing our hands and say, boy, that was bad and anybody want to go get a drink, you know. <laughs> uh, that's not what we want to do. And th th there are things. I'm, I'm convinced. We spent five years looking every, under every rock we could find. Eastern Europe, West Africa, uh, throughout South Asia, throughout Southeast Asia, just looking, okay, driven by a desire to see if solutions could be, um, could accrue. And I think there's a calculation. It's not an easy calculation, but I think it's, it's a combination of powerful legislation at, at a government level and the Traffic and Victims Protection Act, which is coming up for reauthorization in 2011, was authorized, reauthorized in 2010. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary of this this act, which was so powerful, which was equally supported during the Clinton, the Bush administrations, and now during the Obama administration. So it's powerful, powerful legislation that can really influence the trafficking practices globally. But there's another part of that equation, too. I think, you know, gov government people, uh, I'll be careful here, you know, making any comments about it. But I think, you know, th these, these, are, these are good people. They don't, they don't cast a blind eye to trafficking, but they're also extremely busy people. And unless you make it so painful for them to not do anything, they'll never do anything. And so there's a role for the, the civil, civil society, society and there's a role for the faith communities. I, I, think, I think the faith community has a key role to play 
in terms of addressing this worldwide, just in terms of a distribution system. You have faith communities that are in every village. You can't go into a village in Africa. You can't go into a, a village in Southeast Asia where there's not a congregation. And unfortunately, it's not too sort of chic to talk about churches and the faith community, but they're out there and they're often committed to this. And then the third part of that calculation, I think, is the business community, the private sector. Yeah. We've got groups like uh, Manpower, which is the world's largest temporary employment agency. Uh, you spoke about the hospitality industry. Uh, Marilyn Carlson, Carlson Industries is one of the largest hospitality industries globally. They're training their people on the front lines of resorts to really be able to spot traffickers. The body shop is doing terrific work around mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so there, there's, there's movement taking place among the private sector Minnesota, yeah. that I think is part of that calculation. And it's, it's, it's complicated, mm -hmm. but we need all of those people coming together as well as strong government actors playing a role for us to really see this uh, reduced. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely also some countries where there really is progress. I mean, I don't know overall whether it's worldwide, better or worse, I don't know. But certainly there are many countries where um, there has been improvement. Uh, places like Taiwan where there's been improvement because of rising living standards. And so um, Aboriginal girls in Taiwan no longer are sold to the, to the red light districts uh, in Snake Alley in Taipei. Uh, you've got countries where there has been a crackdown that has worked. And... Seoul, South Korea is an example where you had a woman police chief and she launched a crackdown in the red light district in Seoul and it seems to have made a substantial uh, difference. Then you've had countries where there has been some combination of U.S. pressure, pressure through the, 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 the TIP report, which is a function of this trafficking um, the, uh, the, this act initially passed in 2000. Um, and I'd say both Thailand and Cambodia have actually seen real improvement. In, th in Thailand today, there's an awful lot of prostitution, but by and large, if you are a Thai girl who speaks Thai, then you're not going to be held against your will in a brothel. If you're Burmese, if you're no, Khmer, then you will be. But, if, uh, but there has been a real improvement in Thailand um, and, and even in Cambodia, um, maybe in Malaysia. So, you know, it is not hopeless and one can, with some combination of pressure and education, all these things, see some real improvements, I think. And I would say civil society is much more aware of this. I mean, we, at least just, you know, judging from the um, proposals that the Global Fund for Women has gotten over the last seven years, a huge increase in organizations on the ground, from whether it's countries in Israel who are helping Ukrainian girls go back to their homeland in Ukraine from where they were trafficked into Israel, um, bringing out reports together with Human Rights Watch. Um, uh, Isha Kolaisha in, in, in Israel was key in bringing out a report with Human Rights Watch that pushed um, the government of Israel um, to actually comply. So they actually moved from the level three in the TIP report to level one in the TIP report. So I think um, our investments in making sure that civil society is strong and vibrant and that women's voices are really heard in those civil society organizations is a big piece of helping, you know, in the Philippines there's a great saying, saying how do you cook a, a, a rice cake with heat from the bottom and heat from the top. And Randy spoke about the need for the heat from the top. We absolutely need that. But the heat from the top only works if you also have heat from the bottom. And I think we have to do all we can to strengthen and support that as well. Uh, which seems like a great time to open it up for questions. Um, I'm going to ask people to please stand up because it is absolutely, the lights are absolutely blinding. Um, <laughs> but does, do we have uh, questions in the audience? Um, There's one right here. Right, one right here, sir. Uh, 
We just handed one over. All right, how often is it that families knowingly sell their daughters into prostitution rather than this deceit where they're told that they'll be going to a nice house to work for a family? It, um, um, I mean, it certainly happens um, uh, quite regularly. I remember visiting a woman uh, in the Philippines who had uh, sold her daughter. Um, and, you know, I wondered if it was because of some extraordinary economic desperation or some desperate medical need. And no, I visited her house and there was new stereo in the house. Um, and her daughter had bought that stereo, in effect. Um, so that happens. I think that more common is a situation where um, parents will, you know, as Kavita said earlier, there'll be somebody who will come uh, and say, oh, I'm hiring five people to work in restaurants, uh, and, you know, I'll pay X amount of money for each person I recruit. And the parents are wary and they're suspicious, but they don't know, and sometimes those recruiters are legitimate and sometimes they're not, but because it's a girl and girls don't matter yeah. and because they want money, then they're willing to take a risk that they would not take, for example, with their son. Well, I mean, I think when do, when do uh, parents willingly sell their children? I think it's into early marriage for huge amounts of money in yes. some countries in the developing yes. world. It is, in my view, it's selling your children. And many customs are, in parts of the world, where you sell a child at 11 or 10 or 12 years old for a big dowry, and that's income to the family. Yeah. And so this is the time where they truly knowingly sell. Now, it may be custom, but in it's my view, setting. it's really inexcusable yeah. um, that you would actually, you know, that girls are so undervalued that this is, is, is what you do with your girls in some cultures. Hi. Uh, first of all, I pre really appreciate the uh, topic this evening and the, the comments. And uh, I've heard a lot, of, uh, a lot of what we've talked about tonight has been the villages of Thailand and Cambodia and West Africa, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I'm here tonight <clears throat> was I was recently brought to my attention, I mean very recently, just in the last couple of weeks, that the small village of where I'm from, Portland, Oregon, <laughs> Uh, actually is number two in the United States uh, for for trafficking. Yeah. And I, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I was absolutely in awe because I never paid attention before. Uh, <clears throat> was not my issue. I'm all doing other things in education and uh, other things that, that... But I was just shocked. So my question, I have a couple questions. Number one, how prevalent is this in the United States? And to what extent are we supporting this international uh, exchange, if you will. Um, and then we haven't talked a lot about solutions tonight. And I, I always say, you know, it's nice to raise issues and talk about problems, but let's have solutions. <clears throat> so I'd love to hear, number one, how prevalent is it in the United States? What can we do? I mean, Dan Rather did a report that I actually went online and, and saw about Portland. We only have two vice cops in all of or in Portland to handle this issue of teenage prostitution, and I, I think that's appalling. So what can be done, what can we do, and then how prevalent is it 
and uh, what's your, your thoughts on all that? My guess is there are no statistics, but I think most of us know that there is a certain amount of prostitution in the United States, probably some in all states. And uh, we read a lot about what goes on in Nevada. I don't know if other states are as um, advanced in that practice as that state is. I do know that in Arizona, as I said earlier, we have examples of young children being brought in through Mexico and uh, brought into Arizona, I assume for some use there and some for distribution later. So our country is not free from fault in this area. Excuse me, um, Judge O'Connor. Um, Phoenix is number one in the United States for sex trafficking. Yeah. And I've spoken to the police about it. And they say that the girls are brought in for the sports games, for the football and the various sports activities. I think that the place where the solutions can begin is by putting pressure on police departments. I think so, too. We have but a Phoenix prominent sheriff in Maricopa County. <laughs> Maybe this would be a new diversion. Mandy, <laughs> <laughs> you might want to say something. About, yeah, I think you, one of the misperceptions about the situation in the U.S. is that the worst problem of trafficking is foreign women brought into the U.S. And that is indeed a significant part of right. it. But it, it seems to me that the biggest part is uh, teenage girls who have difficulties at home. Often it's mom's boyfriend is hitting on them. Right. They run away from home. They are desperate. They go to the bus station, and the only person who was on the lookout for them at the bus station, it's not some agency and it's not the police department. It is the precisely the pimps. Yeah. And uh, yeah. if a white middle-class girl goes missing then, you know, cable TV goes nuts. Uh, if every day in every city you have these girls from these more troubled homes, often of color, who end up in these situations Nobody and nobody's, nobody's intervening. In terms of what one can do about it, um, I mean, I don't think that, well, and nobody really knows the relative state of different cities. Some clearly worse than others, but, but in terms of Oregon, there clearly is a problem. And Washington State is an interesting analogy since it's right next door. And Washington State has really cracked down on trafficking and has made a difference in Washington State, something I think Oregon could follow. And one of the things that they have done is to focus not on arrests of the girls, but of the pimps and trying to break that pimp business model. Can I, can I come in on that too? I think the, um, as, as uh, we funded some research lately where We've been we've been sort of geotagging uh, re reports of um, individuals being trafficked, and in this geotagging technology, you can you can get the coordinates for where those reports come in. And it's really quite fascinating to see that that the reports of a trafficked individual follow the major transportation routes in the United States. Yeah. So it's not a surprise that you look at I-5. I happen to be from California, from San Diego mm -hmm. to Vancouver, that the predominance of trafficking takes place through these. Through this, through this major uh, transportation route throughout the U.S., and so that, that's a starting place for us. Is that if you can begin to identify the predominance of it, if you can geotag where are people beginning to report that, then you can bring this to uh, your your police departments for uh, prosecution, for enforcement. You can raise that with your uh, 
civil society organizations. We happened to fund a small group that when they saw this data, they decided it's not going to happen in our community. So recognizing that trafficking is trafficking on a route, they went to their local truck stop and little small group, you know, you put $1,000 into them and they put little, um, little cards in the, in the women's restrooms. Okay, this is a small solution, okay, but it worked. And so uh, people that are being trafficked need to stop at the truck stops and use the facilities. And there was a card in there where they could take it after they returned the key to the service desk that just said, I'm being trafficked. And that person could tag the truck driver, they could call the police, and they could, they could follow through on it. So that's yeah. a practical solution yeah. that we yeah. can do. Yeah. And, and I just want to add to that, I was recently at a meeting where um, uh, the labs at MIT, there's a really interesting lab called Sensible Cities, um, was meeting with um, uh, the Un University of Southern California, USC, um, and the State Department to talk about how we can use cell phones. Um, almost everybody in the United States has access to some kind of a mobile cell phone, and young people particularly are very good at texting, and as I've seen from my 16-year-old daughter, they know how to do it inside their sweatshirts. Um, uh, but jokes aside, actually this is a very serious conversation that we were having with the Office of Trafficking in Persons at the State Department with this lab in MIT to talk about are there ways in which we could provide simple, textable um, numbers that would be sort of like a crisis, the way you used to call a crisis hotline for violence. Um, could you do that for young people um, in, when they're either already in the position of being trafficked or more importantly, I think one of the important issues which I mentioned earlier is this whole psychological issue. If you've been abused, and as, as Nick said, if your own self-esteem is so in the toilet that you, don't, that you think this pimp is offering you not just a job, actually, but love and respect and care, how do you begin to then have a situation in which you can actually... What, what are we doing on the prevention side? I guess I would say, why are young people in this country, which is not Burkina Faso, which is not Cambodia, which is not, why are young people in a position where they are running away? What is creating the abusive situation inside their home and what are we doing on that end? And I think over there, I would, I would say the groups that I've been most impressed with are groups like um, the Family Violence Prevention Fund that are doing so much around trying to address violence inside our homes. Um, next question. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I, uh, Randy was talking about uh, what I call multi-track diplomacy. Uh, governments, it's important. Nonprofits are important. Business is important. The faith community is important. Uh, activists are important. Uh, anytime you're trying to resolve conflicts, and there's clearly conflicts here. But my, my, uh, one of my hopes is that what I read recently about the United Nations and how the United Nations has matured over the years with international agreements on, on uh, many topics, one of which is this slavery uh, topic. And I'd like a little more meat on that United Nations effort, if you could give it to us. How many countries of the 192 plus or minus countries in the United Nations have signed this agreement? And, and, how, and how is it enforced in the uh, United Nations? Um. Well, having just come out of the United Nations, I, I, I guess people are looking to me to at least try and a, a, attempt to answer these questions. 
I, I can say I don't know how many have signed. I mean, we have many conventions that do, I think, basic things around these issues. They set up a, a framework around which then countries who sign on develop their own legal frameworks to comply with the convention for which they've just signed up. And so what this convention, these conventions do is they'll give the kinds of laws and the, the kinds of regu regulatory practices that need to then be implemented in the countries who are signatories to these agreements. Um, but I think beyond what happens with these agreements and with, with the countries who have the laws, much of what we're talking about is our police departments trained, our teachers trained, our social workers trained, to really detect where someone may be abused, someone may be in trouble. And I think a lot of times we don't put anywhere in the world, not just the U.S., but in many places in the world, the real need is to have the right kind of training for all of those people who may be able to protect these people that are in trouble. And I think a lot more needs to be put into that. I don't know if others have more on the... Well, um you know, I would also just go back to the point I think Nick made earlier, which is it's also about valuing human life in a different way and in particular valuing female life in a different way. So one of the conventions is not so much the convention on the prevention of trafficking, but it's the convention on the rights of the child and the convention on the rights of women. And although many nations on, in, on the rights of, um, of in, and in both of those instances, the United States is actually not a signatory to either of those to either of those two treaties in part because it doesn't want to be held accountable for the internal legal requirements that would be necessary but on the rights of women almost uh, 186 countries have signed the convention on you know eliminating all forms of discrimination against not women including not including the united states um and not including Somalia and Iran. Um, but unfortunately, signing these UN treaties does not make for enforcement. And I think that is the, that is the distinction. Uh, effective civil society organizations can try and use the treaties that their governments have signed to hold their government's feet to the fire or to shame them publicly or to, you know, to find ways in which uh, they can be pressured to do more. But it really does require, again, I think in this instance, uh, a combination of people putting pressure from the outside. I think when, uh, you know, when international organizations come and make a trade agreement with your country, they should ask, how are you treating, what are you doing about slavery? What are you doing about trafficking? They shouldn't be willing to make a defense deal with you and sell you F-16s if your record on trafficking in persons sucks. Yes. You know? <laughs> Um, I think I'll wrap up on that note. We should all be paying more attention to what the people we do business with are doing. Um, and uh, I want to thank all of our wonderful panelists tonight for uh, giving us a little hope and a lot of information. Thank you.